Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Maya Shenwar, the editor-in-chief of Truefout, who is one of the most fun people I've talked to. We we had a lot of... Uh, interesting asides a lot of interesting points and a lot of interesting discussion about some of the stuff that she's most known for like her writing on prisons maya's a pretty cool lady and i think you'll enjoy this week's episode and if you do i hope you consider subscribing on itunes for the high price of nada but for now i hope you're having a good new year's day and that you have a great new year's year and that you enjoy the talk can you, like, state your name for the record? Yes. Um, should I... You can just talk. Okay. It'll, uh, get you. It's Maya Shetmar. And are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? No, but my great-grandfather was. Was he, like, a happy member of it? He was... So he was a member and, like, also apparently a really great guy. Um... But he got my grandfather in a lot of trouble. Because my grandfather actually worked for the government in the 50s. And then was investigated by McCarthy because his father was a communist. And, yeah. Okay, so that's a lot better answer to my usual soundcheck question than I get. Can I start here? Do you care? Oh, go for it. So so you've got the... The McCarthy thing is interesting because my... My high, my uh, college advisor Richard Freed wrote uh-huh. a book about McCarthy. Oh yeah. And uh, McCarthy sucked. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. Although who knows like how the course of events of like my mother's life and consequently my life would have changed if he hadn't like gotten kicked out of his government job and invested investigated by McCarthy. <laughs> So, you know. So is that like a thing that like has shaped you? Knowing uh, that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think probably the fact that my great-grandfather was a communist has shaped me because, you know, things like that trickle down a little bit. <laughs> and um, I think in both the fact that my grandfather tried to like rebel against that and like became a lawyer and tried to work for the government and of course that didn't work but then also um, definitely adopted some socialist beliefs just by virtue of growing up with with that and um, I think that definitely some of my family's values came through in that way where it's like there's a difference, I think, between like having an ideology. Like, I wouldn't identify as a socialist. I don't want to be an ist of sure. any kind, really. But you know, there's a difference between that and just values. Like, growing up, feeling like, well, of course, every person should have something to eat, and of course, every person should have a house. That was kind of how I grew up. Sure, and that's that's sort of how you are now, right? And, like, you write a lot of stuff that is not, uh, I don't want to say anti-government, but it's not pro-government. It's not, like, like you don't 
You're not carrying water for government or anything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, the problem I have with being, like, some kind of ist in one direction or another is that it tends to be, yeah, like, pro-government, like, we should have much, much more government, or we should have, like, no government or small government. And, like, well, I think we should have fewer laws. I think that definitely the way in which people are incarcerated and policed has a lot to do with having so many laws and so much government involvement in what people do. But I also feel like the government is not providing enough for people. I think that the involvement of the state in people's lives is really just like, it's really large, but it's happening in the wrong ways. And there's not an exact, like, ist that I could formulate to accompany that. Although I guess I do call myself a prison abolitionist. But that's just one particular issue. That's not, <laughs> that's not the whole shebang. That's not everything? No, it's prison. Right. What's a, so you like, yeah, I mean, I guess we could just get into that, which is that you write about prisons. Yep. And, you know, if what you find and what you write is prison's no good. Yeah, yeah, that, that boils it down. And I think it's like, a lot of times I tell people that and they think it's this really absolutist, like, oh, well, you know, what about the horrible people? And like, well, A, I don't think horrible people exist. I think we need to do something when someone is harmed, and I think that we need to deal with violence. I also think that prison is a form of violence, and so when we talk about how to deal with violence, we have to talk about that as well. And so that's kind of my approach to the whole thing. It's not like, okay, we have to shut down all the prisons immediately. It's like, we have to figure out better ways of dealing with violence, and prison is one of those violent things, unfortunately. How'd you start writing about prisons? So, I got started, it was kind of a a couple of different things that set it in motion. One of them was that in college, my senior year, my best friend from high school was deported. And before he was deported, he was kept in detention for like two months. And detention, obviously, is in prison or jail. Where are we uh, talking? Where did you go to high school? I, I went to high school here. In I Chicago? Went to, yeah. And, well, I went to Niles West. Okay. So, yeah. And... So he was, this was like our senior year of college, and it was pretty, like, a shock for me. Like, I didn't realize it was coming, Um, although I think he did a little bit. And I went to visit him and didn't know what to expect, and, you know, I was on one side of the class, he was on the other, and we had to talk over the phone, and his mother was sitting there crying the whole time. And we were all crying, really. And I remember thinking, like, no matter who you are, if you're in this position, like, why can't you even touch your family? <laughs> like, why can't you hug your mother? Everyone should be able to hug their mother. And that was kind of just my first involvement 
was that visceral sentiment. Like, seeing this whole line of people wanting to hug their mothers and not being able to. And so I went back to school and, like, I wrote a poem, a very general poem about prison for my college newspaper. It wasn't very good. I had a column called SWAT Meets World, which was I went to Swarthmore, and, which we called SWAT for short. So you're and a SWAT. So it was, yeah, SWATty. And the column was called SWAT Meets World, like which was like a play on Boy Meets World, which was, you know, a popular sitcom while I and the other people in my class were growing up. <laughs> I remember Boy Meets World. A very quick tangent is I was uh, at a house recently for a story where they uh-huh. were, they were this charity delivers gifts to needy families. And so this little boy is in the house, and he's like five or six or something. And he looks at me and he goes, you look like, you look like, you look like Corey from Boy Meets World. <laughs> and I thought it was the cutest thing. That's adorable. But I don't look like Corey from Boy no. Meets World. So, you know... But I guess he's probably yeah. watching on Netflix or something, you know, or oh, the reruns. Yeah. But but I thought it was pretty cute. That That's is cute. Maybe he was thinking of someone else. <laughs> <laughs> as long as he's not comparing me to Mr. Feeney or something. You right. Know? Which True. I definitely don't look like him. But Yeah. So yeah, so I wrote a column for Swap Meets World and the column wasn't good, but it did get me started thinking about that subject. And after college, eventually I ended up back in Chicago. And then I had contact with the system in a couple other ways. One was I was working for this this group, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, and also living with them. And it's like an anti-war group that does civil disobedience. And Kathy Kelly, who is the coordinator of the group and has been doing this work for like decades, beyond decades, and she had a free room for me and my boyfriend at the time because she was going to prison, because she just like does that, Um, because, you know, people who do regular civil disobedience occasionally end up in prison. Some people ski, some people go to jail. Exactly, that's her. She goes to Afghanistan, she goes to Iraq, and she goes to jail. And Palestine. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, <laughs> so she she was there, and um, she was, at the time, writing a book where the first part of the book was all about her experiences in Iraq, and the second part was about her experiences in prison and kind of, like, drawing with connection. And I was writing a lot about Iraq at the time, and it kind of... That, that hit me too. That, right, there are a lot of similarities between a war zone and a prison and just like the system that creates war and the system that creates prisons. And then, uh, lo and behold, I started writing a story on activism on death row. And right around the same time, my sister went to juvenile detention. So it was just like all these things like came together and I was like well I guess I have to like write about this for the rest of my life um that's kind of a sign the other thing 
besides my my sister going into the system, and she now for the last nine years has been in and out of incarceration. During that time, also, I've had a number of pen pals in prison because once I started writing about it, it um it got into this mode of how do I put this? So people in prison are not like your regular interviewees because they don't have that many other people to talk to. And so I would write to people and then they would write back and then they would keep writing me. So they were like, ah, like they wanted contact with the outside world. And so I kept writing to people. And so I developed like a number of pen pal relationships just through that process of writing back to people and including actually the first person I wrote to on death row for that story and he eventually was killed. What is that, uh, Stephen? Is yeah, that his name? Stephen Michael Woods. Because you wrote a column about that? Yeah. Yeah, that was a tough one. I was an asshole in that situation, unfortunately. I, you know, I, w- I was like... 23, I guess, when I started writing to him, and I wasn't really prepared. Like, I had, like, you know, a vague journalistic training, you know, and I've been writing for my school newspapers for a long time and done a little freelancing, but there's, there's journalism and there's journalism, and it's like, to me, there's no way to prepare yourself for, like, having a close source relationship with someone on death row. And ultimately, it was a friendship. It wasn't a source relationship. We, I, I wrote about him in one story, and then I was like, I can't continue writing stories about activism on death row because it's not going anywhere. <laughs> now, maybe I would think differently about that now, but sure. it was very depressing for me at the time. And I'm sure, like, you know, not as depressing as it was for them. (laughs) Probably not. Hopefully not. But, like, my... What struck me was there was a real disconnect between kind of my attitude and probably the attitudes of a lot of the people reading my story and the activists. And in a way, it was inspiring because I'm sitting outside looking in thinking they're dying. Like, what are they doing? All of them are going to die. They're in the process of dying. And they were, like, agitating for better conditions, for more rights, for the ability to stay in contact with their family members, for better access to legal resources, and creating all these forms in which to organize in this position that seems like total helplessness, you know, and they, at the time, they were on a hunger strike, and so I reached out to Steven to interview him about that, and he had this whole, like, um, this very kind of, like, anarchist, like, we're gonna rise up and defeat the forces of, you know... We're going to shake our chains away. Uh, you know, and I wrote about it and was inspired by it, but also just felt this sense of dread 
and he was only three years older than me, actually, at the time. He was 26, and had been convicted, I think, when he was 21 or 22, and was very much, like, kind of someone... I guess because we were the same age, and also, coincidentally, he was a big reader of the magazine that I wrote for at the time, Punk Planet, which was a Chicago-based print magazine, since defunct because it was print only. Sure. (laughs) But, yeah, he was a big fan of Punk Planet, and we were around the same age, and knew similar places in Chicago, and... It was kind of like this normal friendship, except he was about to be killed. And also it was, you know, I didn't know whether he had actually murdered someone or not. So So he was in Texas, right? Texas. Just wanted to... Oh, yes. He was on death row in Texas where they kill a lot of people. And, I mean, the state kills a lot of people. And his case was very questionable. Someone else had actually confessed to the murder that that he was convicted of, but he didn't have any appeals left at the time, and he had very bad defense, and it was unclear what his role was in the whole thing, but kind of on the eve of his execution, a lot of people came out against it, but he was still executed. The thing was, though, a couple years before he was executed, I just stopped writing to him. And I think about that a lot, because there was always this disconnect between the fact that he was so enthusiastic about his activism and so hopeful, and I was so depressed by the whole thing, to put it in a very selfish way. And I would get these letters, and I eventually just didn't know what to write back. And so, you know how sometimes you can just, like, put something out of your mind, and there's always a million things to do, and it's like, sure. oh, well, this will be the thing I don't do today, writing to Steven, and that started just happening every day, and I just put him out of my head, and then a few years later, I Googled him, he had died, he'd been killed, so. Did he stop writing? He did stop writing. I stopped writing first. Sure. But he did stop writing. And I think also he probably realized that the the letters were becoming, like, less and less, less and less full. And that there is, there is that aspect sometimes to writing someone in prison that, like, there's the person behind bars usually doesn't have that many updates like they don't have that much to talk about and so it's sometimes hard to like you know a letter is different than a conversation you have to kind of like carry on a monologue for several pages and if you don't have that much to talk about it becomes very clear in the letter And I think also there's a sense that, um, especially if you're corresponding with someone who's on death row or who's sentenced to life, they, they do want 
some sense often that you that there's a buy-in, you know, that you're like committed to keeping in contact because it's so devastating because so many people fall off the radar, you know. And I bet he picked up on the fact that I was drifting away or being an asshole. <laughs> sure. It's do you um, so you're 23 at this time. You're writing to a guy on death row. What's your journalism experience at this point? Did you like? You, did you study journalism? So I, uh, I mean, I'd known pretty much since I was in fifth grade that I wanted to be a journalist because I love to write, and I always said I wanted to be a writer. And my grandfather, who's very practical also had the communist father and you know was always thinking about like kind of very practical things you know like perhaps as a result of having like lost his job and had to start his life and over again and like with an eye to the job market and what exactly was needed at the time and he was like you can't be a writer you won't like make money like, sure. being a writer is not something you live off. This is true. Yeah, it's true. So, I was like, oh, that sucks. What do I do? And he was like, well, you know, I guess you could be a journalist. <laughs> I was like, what's that? And he was like, oh, you get paid to write for, you know, magazines and newspapers. They sometimes pay. And I was like, okay, cool. Like... I'll do that. And but I didn't go to journalism school. So I was always on like the school paper and stuff. But um I did the uh chair program at Northwestern the the summer before my senior year of high school. So it's like a journalism program for high school kids who think they wanna like go into journalism and it's like a five week thing at Northwestern. They try to make it kind of like Medill, and... What do they teach you? They, they teach you, you have classes in, like, everything you would have, like, your first year of journalism school. So there's, like, news writing, feature writing, opinion writing, journalism, ethics, that kind of thing. And I was, like, so bad at it. And it was very depressing, because I had always thought I was good at it, but... The thing that I was bad at was uh, being objective, like, taking all of the, like, soul out of my writing. (laughs) That's a way to put it. (laughs) This is is what I mean. And truth out, like, we don't say we're objective. (laughs) And this is what, like, I think that... The problem that I had is some people are very good at straight news writing, and that's that's important. But I find it very difficult to like have my heart in it and not like write my heart into whatever I'm doing. And so I would I would write things and I would get I would either get the the article back with like half the words crossed out <laughs> or they would be like you wrote about the wrong thing <laughs> like this is not a news topic or whatever you know so that was depressing and for like a few weeks I was like oh 
I guess I, I don't want to do this after all, but I got over it. And I think that experience kind of pushed me in the direction of thinking about like expanding my own definition of journalism. But like, even when I was a reporter, like when I was writing um, investigative stories and feature stories and stuff like that, I, I always wrote for places that let me have a little freedom with that stuff, <laughs> you know, and have display some subjectivity, I guess. Sure. Do you remember anything in particular that got you in trouble at, Mid- at uh, Northwestern? Yeah. Well, first of all, they didn't like adjectives or adverbs, um, which I get, uh, and that was actually helpful that I I learned more about like emphasizing verbs and nouns. But I do like adjectives, and they hated them, and that was a major disagreement. Um, another thing was... And this is funny because this is before I really got interested in prison. Was like at the time they were like one of the things that we had to do was read David Protest's book about like the Innocence Project and clearing people, like exonerating people on death row, that kind of thing. This is probably around the time when he was at his hottest, right? Oh yeah, he was very hot at the time, and. Um, yeah, popularity-wise. and Which is what like, I meant to. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, so I decided that I wanted to, like, do something in that vein. I forgot about this. I interviewed someone who had gotten out of prison, who, like, was not an exoneree, who had just, like, gotten out of prison, and did this through, like, kind of, like, a secondary, like, one of the professors said, oh, contact this person, I contact, you know. <laughs> and I just did kind of, like, you were supposed to do a profile of someone. And I did that. And what I meant by, like, you're not supposed to write on this was, like, they gave it back. Wow, I forgot about this. Gave it back, and they were like, you know, like, I know we've read this stuff about the Innocence Project and everything, <laughs> but this person actually did commit their crime, and like, why are you talking about all this stuff? Like, you know, like, I, I didn't talk about the crime, and there was no emphasis on that, and I think, I mean, it was kind of just a character sketch, but for me, it was, like, it, it was meaningful, and it insulted me that they were like this <laughs> so was it just like this guy got out of prison this is well, right. what his like, experience was type of yeah, thing yeah kind of like what it was like being out and that kind of thing but this was like in I guess like 1999 and it, it was not like you know that was still like tough on crime era and the idea that you would talk to someone and not talk about their crime, I think, was a kind of felt like major negligence or something. 
from a journalistic perspective. Whereas for me, like, you know, I just wrote a book about prison, and in the book, half of the people I introduce, I don't talk about their crime. I feel like there's more to them than that, and one person, a person shouldn't be defined by one act. And so I only bring it up if it seems relevant. And but yeah, that that was a thing. Another thing I was admonished for as a journalist, like at that at that summer camp, which the summer camp from me. hell. Yeah. Although I did meet my long distance boyfriend there. That was short lived. Um, but <laughs> but um. It was like they admonished me for uh, putting, like, you know, like, lead, not graph. Like, there's, like, a very specific structure for a new story. Four million. Yeah. And they, I always wanted to, like, mix it up and have things in the wrong places. And they were like... You can't, I remember being told, you can't do this until you're totally trained. And like, you know, like in five years or ten years you can do this. You can't do it now. And I was like, no. I want to do it now. Leave me alone. That's pretty funny. But so you went to Swarthmore and yeah. uh, you were working on stuff. Yeah. Writing I, columns. Yeah. And I actually majored in English and creative writing, so <laughs> not they don't have journalism. It's a liberal arts college, sure. so Good for journalism them. is too career directed. <laughs> they, they don't do that. Was it um? Was it hard to? Did you ever, while you're in college and you're not studying journalism, was that still the goal? Like, from the fifth grade, you're like, yeah, you know, I will do journalism. That's yeah, well, I, you know, in college, I think liberal arts college is supposed to make you question everything and come out really confused. And so it did do that. And I did come out very confused. But that was always kind of in my head. And over the summer before my senior year, I did an internship at In These Times here in Chicago, and that was really helpful, I think, in part because In These Times is definitely in the vein of independent media that, that are okay with you coming out with your subjectivity and not being objective all the time, and that was helpful for me to be like, okay, well, you know... I can come closer to the kind of thing that maybe I, I'm good at here, you know, because my last official journalistic experience outside of school had been this major rejection at the Cherub program. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, right. So coming out of college, I briefly tried to be an organic farmer that failed after a couple weeks. What, what does that mean? It's, uh... I know what organic farming means. Oh, I mean, right, right, right. How did I fail? Well, Or so, how'd you try? 
so my boyfriend and I, who is now my husband, who I met in college, we went to Europe right after college because, like I said, you come out of liberal arts college, you have no idea what you're doing, you're supposed to be totally confused. And we were. And we were like, well, this is what we should do. We should move to Europe and be farmers. And I like it. Right? So we did woof the program that's willing workers on organic farms, which basically means that you work without pay on a farm and they give you food. And <laughs> which is like, oh, is that the system that we should use? But anyway, they so that's what decided to do and we ended up on this farm and I guess this is good because it prompted us to come back here (laughs) we ended up on this farm that had marketed itself as like a spiritual a center for like spiritual wellness and we got there and it was run by these Hasidic Jews who were like really religious and I'm Jewish but not practicing and Brian is like Irish, Italian, Catholic, and uh, so you're both going to hell, right? Well, we right Jewish hell, which is just like Earth with people really mad at you, <laughs> and uh, so so we were like on this farm, and they were both immediately mad at us for not being Orthodox Jews. <laughs> we were always messing up. I like turned off the lights and. Saturday when I wasn't supposed to do that and I like messed up some of the kosher food and we had to sleep in a tent and like I messed up the tent we're just always doing things against the rules unintentionally and then the kicker was I guess this is journalism related (laughs) I was writing in my journal on Shabbat on the Sabbath and they were like you really gotta go. Like, you are not allowed to do that. And because it's a Sabbath? Right, you're supposed to rest. You can't write. And so, yeah, we, we had to go. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunate. After that, it was like, well, we gave it a sh- Oh, and the other thing is, I was just really bad at manual labor. Sure. Where it was, was really this? It was really hard. It was in Okay, that is, you know what, everything about that sounds sketchy. Yeah. That sounds like indentured servitude. Yeah, yeah, basically it is, and I think what they count on is that it's just like kind of kids in their 20s who are like, oh, I don't know what to do, organic farming sounds like a thing. That sounds, you know, kind of like fun. Was it really organic? I don't know what it was. Because, <laughs> like, you know... I was just like, I'm the hot sun. I don't like that. <laughs> the, uh... You know, I've I've done farm work, and, you know, I think I think bailing hay for a while is probably good for you, but I wouldn't yeah. want to do it. You right. know? It gives right. you an appreciation of what people, um... People do. Exactly. Well, that... I think that was really important. Because it, like... I think the thing about stuff like that, like, you know, where this type of program is mostly, like, college age or older 
white kids who have a little bit of money, like, wanting to, like, travel and work on farms, and then they're like, wait, working on farms is really hard. <laughs> I'm not good at it. Uh, so, yeah, a learning experience. That I'm not good at. And, I mean, basically, my... my I have checked off many, many things that I'm not good at and arrived at where I am right now, where I'm doing something that I think I'm okay at. So I think I'm going to stick here. Yeah, you're pretty colorful. Don't go back to organic farming. Though. No, 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 no. Unless, unless you want to run a farm and have a cult. I was no. thinking you were going to tell me that the place was a cult, yeah. Oh, well, it kind of was. I mean, I think a lot of religions are cults. <laughs> <laughs> the other farm, we, we had a choice between two, and one of them was called, like, the Spiritual Retreat Center, and the other one was called the Naturist Farm, and we didn't See, know what that See, that's the one meant. I would have gone to. See, we didn't know what that meant, and we signed up for it, and then they said, okay, we'll pick you up from Florence, and we were like, sweet, and then we Googled it at a cafe, and we were like, oh my god. Nature is Buddhist. Okay. Everyone on the farm is naked. <laughs> like, we can't do it. So that's why we went with the other one. God, that would be that would be a way to work. Yeah. You right. Know? Right. Exactly. Like um, especially if you've got any like prickly crops, you know. Right. Exactly. No, I I think there's no good crops for that situation. So when you when you came back, uh, what did you do? Well, that was kind of the reason for living and working at Voices for Creative Nonviolence, which is in Uptown. I had spent some time there in high school. Kathy Kelly, who founded it, came to my high school to speak because there was this one radical teacher who was like, hey, we'll have like this peace activist come and speak at the school and I went and heard her speak at the time their focus was the sanctions on Iraq that were in place before the invasion obviously then the sanctions but uh, but yeah they what they did was break the sanctions against Iraq and like bring medical supplies and stuff to kids in Iraq, and so I had spent some time there, and coming back here, I was like, well, guess, guess I have to do something, so that was, like, the first place I turned, because it was something I was interested in, and they let you live there if you work there, <laughs> so, uh, so <laughs> again, then, the, the yeah. cult thing, right, but I discovered there, it's, it's not a cult, but it is kind of a wonderful commune um, and I'm not good at living communally either <laughs> like it was just I mean they're saints all of them are, are wonderful saints but I was like Use the I, don't the hot want, water. I don't want to like share my peanut butter with ten people and like have to decide how to buy groceries and that kind of thing it's really hard so yeah but that, that was great, and also kind of 
that's what prompted me to start writing about Iraq and Afghanistan and the military budget, which was what I was writing about primarily in addition to prison when I started at Truth Out in 2007. Well, that was a big thing, right? The yeah. war? Oh, yeah, that I mean, was a big deal. <laughs> people kind of forget it because it's never right. in the news. It's it's out of sight, out of mind. But Right, exactly. Yeah, it was a huge deal. And definitely, like, when I was in college, that was formative for me. Like, I started college a couple days before 9-11. And so 9-11 happened while I was in my astronomy class. <laughs> like the first day of astronomy and uh, I it made such a big impression like the war happening in the immediate aftermath and feeling like that was something that I not only wanted to protest but also write about like the first thing I wrote from my college newspaper was an editorial. So, like, it's worth more. I'm sure it's different at, like, schools with actual journalism programs. But it's worth more. It was like, oh, who wants to write the editorial this week? <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> uh, So I remember the first editorial I wrote was about how women were being used as an excuse for the invasion of Afghanistan. Like, they were like, women are being oppressed in Afghanistan, we have to bomb it. So, yeah, uh, that definitely was, like, kind of one of the things that drove my, my writing. And also, along the lines of the objectivity problem, I was also going to protest and doing that sort of thing. So, it was one of the ways I learned about it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of those things where, I mean, it's okay to be subjective or to have a viewpoint as long as you're upfront about it, right? Right. Well, that's my feeling, is you have to be upfront about it. And actually, like, for years, for most of the time that I've written about prison, I haven't talked at all about, like, the personal motivations behind it for me, and which was fine up to a point, but I started feeling like as I was starting to write about more issues that were related to my personal experience, so like related to families and things like that, I felt like I had to talk about my family because otherwise that would be dishonest. Like, So I started doing that last year. And in my book that I just wrote, I that's kind of what holds the book together. It's it's not mostly what it's about, but I definitely use it as a thread throughout the book. It's uh, uh the book of course is locked down, locked out, which yes. which we will plug again. But <laughs> the um the thing with your sister, like, you wrote a thing... She went into prison pregnant, right? Yep. Was it prison or jail? Prison. So, she... I mean, she has been in and out for a while. But this last time that she went to prison... So, she was arrested 
and went to Cook County Jail, and while she was in jail, that's when she discovered that she was pregnant. Like, they give you a pregnancy test, she had just become pregnant. So when she was sentenced to prison after that, it was, like, near the beginning of her pregnancy. So her pregnancy happened in prison. She gave birth. And then she had three months after the baby was born where they were separated. So that was an interesting, heartbreaking year, for sure. And she, it's, looking back on it, it's already, it seems like a different era, you know, but I, that was another thing that pushed me in the direction of like, no one should ever have to go through this. Like, especially when you have a baby in the picture, like, you're punishing a person as soon as they're born. I think people are often pretty horrified when they find out that, like, pregnant women giving birth get, like, shackled. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they shackle in Illinois like they do in some places, but... What they do, so in Illinois, shackling is outlawed during childbirth, and that's actually unusual. Most states it is legal. In Illinois, you can't shackle during childbirth, but it's legal to shackle right afterwards. And so... That's when they're most dangerous. Right, exactly. They're just going to pull right after the baby's born. So... Yeah, they're considered flight risks. <laughs> so my, my sister gave birth, and then right after she gave birth, she was shackled to the bedpost. And so it was difficult to hold the baby. She had the baby for 24 hours, and then she was taken away. You wrote a moving column about breastfeeding, uh, right? My moms can't breastfeed their kids. Right. And in jail, and like that's something that you don't think is right, right? Yeah, it's it's one of those issues. Like there are so many things that come up as a result of being in prison. Like so many basic rights that are denied. That sometimes it, it's difficult to focus on the specifics. So I decided to take just this one thing. It's like. Breastfeeding is one of those basic, like, innate human functions that you're like, well, that's a right, you know, that's like a human right. But in prison, obviously, it can't happen. And it's not only the case that, like, if you're in jail or prison, the baby's usually not there. It's also that they're not allowed to pump milk. They're not allowed to have breast pumps. And I, I tried to find out why when my sister was incarcerated because this was something she felt like she could do since she was going to be away from the baby for three months. And she thought, well, if she could continue pumping milk, that would be helpful. The baby can have the milk. And like, some, some places this has been done. And also then when she got out, she could breastfeed. That was the idea. Well, they, they were like, no, we don't do that. Like, I said, why can't you have a breast pump in prison? And this is just, like, emblematic of the system. They're like, well, 
that's a safety risk. So I'm like, why? Like, what's what's risky about it? It's a safety risk. It's just like the, there's no logic. <laughs> It's right. Just, like, well, what's someone gonna do with a breast pump? There's no like possible way to use that for violence. Like, imagine not sure what a breast pump looks like. So it's like, yeah, is it like a thing that they take your blood pressure with or something? It's similar to that, and it's very like there's no like sharp edges or anything. You know, there's no, there's nothing that could be weaponized. It's just like something that they denied categorically because they deny most things. But what I ended up doing with this was I I was like, damn it, she's not gonna get to be with her baby. She's not gonna get to see the first few months of her baby's life. She probably won't get to visit. I at least want her to have this. So I like went and talked to a bunch of advocates, and I actually got in touch with one of the state reps that I thought would be sympathetic and because I covered these issues and this this state rep was like well yeah they, that should be allowed for everyone so she kind of put some pressure on the prison was like everyone at this prison should probably have the right to breastfeed if they want and it wasn't, it's not like a state law banning breast pumps, it's just all prisons have that policy. So this prison was finally like, okay, fine, whatever. What prison? <laughs> Logan. Okay. Yeah, and uh, so they, they ended up allowing it, and that actually, I think, set a good precedent. The problem with that, and I think with anything that you... Any little door you open was like, well, once you allow breast pumps, that doesn't mean they're funded, that doesn't mean they let people use them, actually, and there are all these other barriers, but it, it was, I think, a positive development overall. Yeah, a policy is only as good as its enforcement, right. you know, or an implementation. Yep. I want to circle back to your friend from high school who got deported. Yes. Did he get sent to Mexico or did he get sent no. to... No, so he was from the Philippines. Okay. And he was sent back there and basically has spent the past nine years like supporting various family members all over the world. And uh, it had been... Yeah, it, it's funny because I've I've kept in touch with him since since then. He finally got a visa to go to Canada, and because there are really no jobs in the Philippines, and it was very hard uh, to make money because like suddenly he had all these family members without jobs. He got a visa to Canada, and he has decided to not try to reapply to get back in the U.S. Because after 10 years, he could reapply, and he was like, I don't want to because I hate it. <laughs> like, sure. it developed so much animosity. And so, yeah, so he, like, wants his mom to move to Canada. But all of his family members are now, like, split up. Like, two of his brothers in the United States because they were born here and 
his brother and father are in the Philippines. It was just like, yeah, like it still hits me how bizarre it was. And this was like, I mean, I had known other people who'd been deported. Um, this was one of those situations where, like, this was before Dreamers. You know, this was before there was that movement. But it was like, he was in that position, like, he had come here as a young child, and not, yeah, I mean, I have, I think, a lot of questions about that still, but, um, I mean, about, like, especially since I write about prisons, I don't want to say, like, good immigrants, bad immigrants, like, you know, but in his situation, like, he definitely would have fit into that dreamer category, but there was no category. Sure. You know? They weren't organized, they weren't open. Right, exactly. And so, that was, that was a consequence. Is he doing okay? He's doing well, finally. Yeah, it seems like, at this point, he's like, on a path that he wants to be on but they deported him like right before he finished college like it was really brutal like like six months before finishing college so I think it kind of felt like his life was over I can't even imagine what that would be like you know yeah yeah me neither I think that when I visited him prison it was just one of the things that hit me the hardest was like look how quickly your life can change like all of a sudden you're like in a cell with people who've committed very serious crimes like three weeks ago you were at Loyola (laughs) right right that's that's interesting And, and that's probably true for a lot of the people you write about in your book about prisons, right? Yeah. Because, like... Absolutely. You go to jail and your whole life changes. Right. Yeah, within the space of a few seconds, really. It's like... A lot of people talk about that, especially people who are locked up for, like, long periods of time. Just, like, how quickly your whole conception of the world and your place in it shifts. Because... Especially in a society that, like, really treats people who've been incarcerated as not human. You're incarcerated and all of a sudden, like, you're in a different category forever. Right. It's like, um, it's like, you know, I gotta tell you, I find it like, you you know Felony Frank, Frank's? It's a hot dog place on the west side. They got closed down because... The alderman didn't want to give him a sign, and they just opened up in Oak Park, which is why I, I have it on my oh, mind. Oh, really? Yeah, Oak Park is going to let them have a sign. That. Oh, wow. But cool. you know, the whole point of that is we're only going to hire felons so that people can have something I to love do. That yeah, I forgot. Right, that there's a few places that will do that, but like I interviewed uh, Danny Davis a few times. Um, who's, like, one of the few congressmen for people, yeah. Yeah, who's 
uh, one of the few U.S. Congress members who's consistently pushed on this issue. Like, he was pushing for changes to the prison system when it was completely unpopular. But he was saying, he was like, I hire people who have records. Like, he makes a practice of it. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because no one else does. No one else has hired them. And so even if Congress passes, like, the best legislation about giving people job training or whatever, it doesn't matter if they don't get hired. Sure. And so, yeah, I love that. He was like, sometimes they're a big nuisance, but I just hire them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't know that I'd straight up want to work with somebody who, like, killed people. But, like, you know, there's probably things below that that, you know, you've got to shake it off, you know? Like, somebody's got something. But it's interesting, because if you have an expectation that you can't work with someone because they're bad, right. and then they can't do anything because they're bad, well, they're, exactly. they're going to have to be bad, right? Like, yeah, you're setting them up to be bad and to keep doing things that might get them sent to jail also. It's like, you know, and... and you know, we, we try to think of our lives as we're not on, like, a track. Like, we can get off the track. We can do things. Right. We can, like, take different routes. Right. Uh, but sometimes, uh, and this isn't just for people in jail. This is for people of all sorts of circumstances. You get stuck on a track and you can't get off. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, which is, for sure. Which is, like, something interesting about that, where once you're a felon, I mean, what are you going to do? Right. Yeah. I think that... A lot of people I talk to face that, like, in all these different realms, including, like, their personal life, you know? So it's, like, jobs, education, housing, all that stuff. But it's also, like, you meet someone, whether it's, like, a relationship or a friendship or whatever, and, like, as soon as you say, I'm a felon or I'm a citizen, that, like changes your image completely and puts you in a certain category and it's hard to get get off that track too I just talked to a guy he got out after 17 years he was incarcerated for 17 years for gun possession because of this weird law uh, the Armed Career Criminal Act that it was one of those like tough on crime laws from the 80s. It sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, armed, armed career, career criminal. criminal. That sucks. Who wants an armed career criminal around? <laughs> Throw them away. But, yeah, but it means that, like, if you have a, a certain set of prior convictions, like, basically, if you have a gun, you're going to prison for at least 15 years, and that mainly if you're black, and he's black, and so he, yeah, he just got out. He spent 17 years for a gun, and uh, he, he doesn't know what to do. And he was like, I, I went to apply for a job. He used to be a car salesman, and he said he went to apply for a job at a dealership, and it seemed like he had it. And he talked to them, like, a little more and had to tell them about his record because they were like, oh, but what did you do for the last 17 years? 
And he said the guy literally started shaking. Like, it was like, it became so clear that he was terrified of him. And I guess, like, the image that people who've been incarcerated for 17 years have in a lot of our minds is someone that you should be scared of. Sure. Yeah, so hearing about that really invoked that yeah, we have a set of assumptions and it dictates the ways that other people's lives go. Uh, I take it he did not get the job? He didn't get the job, but yeah, to be continued. He's still trying. It seems like he keeps going back to that one dealership, so I was like, well, you should really look for jobs other places. But he's like, today I'm going to get it. But, uh, to be continued indeed. What's, um, so, uh, currently you are the editor-in-chief of, uh, Truefile, right? Yes. And you're doing your thing still? Uh, what's coming up next for you? Well, I think I just have to spend some time doing my job, because I took, I was part-time for a while writing my book, and I just went on a book tour, and... I think that all of that was really, like, important for me in terms of, like, getting it in the world and personal growth and that that kind of stuff. But also it really kind of re-centered me in truth out. Like, not only, like, in my role and what I want to do there, but also, like, the point of why I got into journalism was to cover issues that aren't being covered enough other places and cover them in ways that maybe aren't being used as much as they should, such as interviewing people who don't get interviewed. Sure. (laughs) And, like, people in prison. And so that applies to all kinds of different topics, though. Mm -hmm. So I think that, yeah, I just, I want to stick with truth out, figure out how to be more intentional in what we cover and who gets interviewed and and what kinds of stories we're doing, like making sure we're doing stories that aren't being done elsewhere. Because it's like, who needs like one more journalism outlet? Uh, There are a lot. And so, yeah, I think like the more time I spend like doing my own projects, the more I want to make truth out something unique that like offers something different to the world. Sure. I mean, you don't want to replicate what other people are doing, right? right. Like, right. You know, like you can't replicate what a daily newspaper does, and you wouldn't want true. to, right? Very true. But um, uh, people. Um, can and should pick up your book Locked Down Locked Out right I agree uh, people want to stay in touch with you how can they do it so they can follow Truth Out which is just truthout.org I also have a website which is myshenwar.com and that's m-a-y-s-c-h-e-n-w-a-r.com well I um I very much appreciate you taking some time to chat with me. I enjoyed it. Yeah, same here.